Well, I want to start a new series today. Uh, this is one I think that probably is overdue. <coughs> you might be turning in your Bible to the book of Isaiah, or as they say in South Africa, Isaiah. I will not try to do that. The name Isaiah means the same as Joshua, actually. Jehovah saves, or God saves. And I think that this book is one of the most encouraging, strengthening books, while at the same time being a very heavy prophetic book of some terrible things to come and some instruction that we very sorely need in the Church of God today or the Churches of God. We used to just call it Church of God. There was only one. Now there are many splinters of that church daughters, sisters of Zion. The overall theme of this book, when you put it all together, really is salvation by faith, or salvation through trust in God, to put it another way. That is one of the great needs that would be at the end time. Christ said, will I find faith when I come back? And this book is designed to show us where we are in error, where we are not showing faith, and by the time it wraps up, it is here to show us how to have faith and to strengthen our faith in God. So, I think it's a very good one to have at the Feast of Tabernacles. Of course, this is the book that nearly everyone turns to at one time or another in a feast sermon and goes straight to chapter 11 and reads about the lion and the lamb and the little child playing with them and so on. But that is only one chapter. There's a great deal more to this book. It isn't all as pretty as that particular chapter, and even the end of that chapter isn't really all that pretty, but no one ever seems to read it all at the Feast of Tabernacles. The book of Isaiah is probably one of the most compelling and interesting books of all of them. He began to prophesy just about a hundred years before Israel, or actually Judah, went into captivity when Nebuchadnezzar uh, took Jerusalem and took the people into Babylon. And he prophesied the best the scholars can figure for at least 40, maybe up to 50 years. A long time of preaching, and most of that time, if not really all that time, not even being listened to. How long... It must have seemed to him to beat his head against the wall and people not hear what he was saying. Up to 50 years of that. And they just didn't want to hear it, didn't get it, wouldn't comprehend it. They were stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and rebellious. Now you remember Jeremiah, who followed Isaiah and preached from somewhere around the time Isaiah stopped until the carrying away of Babylon, and he didn't get any better receptive of an audience than Isaiah had had. Ezekiel finally came on the scene, and before he even started, God said, These people are so hard-headed, Ezekiel, they will not listen to you, don't expect them to listen to you, they won't hear. You'll have a voice that is pleasant to them, 
They kind of like what you're saying, but they aren't going to do anything about it. So he said, I'm going to have to make your forehead like flint so that you will actually be hard-headeder than they are. So that when you butt heads, you will have the hardest head. <laughs> I kind of like that in a way. God said, oh, that's all right. They're hard-headed. I'll make yours even harder. Maybe that's a lesson for the New Testament ministry who, whose job it is to read the, method, the messages of these prophets to God's hard-headed, stiff-necked, rebellious people at the end time. Because people haven't changed a whole lot. Now, hopefully, by walking in the Spirit, we are changing. Hopefully, we're beginning to get a message. Hopefully, we are truly waking up and beginning to get oil in our lamps. But I'll tell you, most of the church does not want to hear what you are going to hear during this feast. And most of the church will not hear what you are about to hear during this feast because the ministry is too soft-headed to preach it. And for that matter, don't even comprehend it. Now, they may comprehend it in part in terms of all those other people, but they don't comprehend it in terms of themselves and their following. Because most of them think that they are okay and their people are okay. It's somebody else who is the problem. You've heard me say that many times. But I'm here to tell you, we are part of the problem. We need not only to listen and hear, we need to do something about it. I think you here are beginning to do something about it. I think you are probably, most of you, studying harder than you have in a long time. You're beginning to hear the message of God. And that is a good thing. Now, I went through a series of 28 tapes on the Minor Prophets, and the message that we find in the Major Prophets is essentially the same. And in fact, during that series, I went back to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel back and forth quite a little because the message is there and the parallels are there. And we'll, we'll do some cross-referencing here. But I want this series to be able to stand on its own as well. In other words, I want anyone who gets hold of this series on Isaiah to be able to comprehend it without having heard what came before. Therefore, I'm going to lay a little bit of background here before we get specifically into the book. And this is going to be something that most of us have heard, and heard several times perhaps, but it doesn't hurt us to review a little bit and understand that this book is written for us. It's not written for someone else. It's written for us. Now, I always prefer, don't you, to read something that has something to do directly with me. Wouldn't you rather read a letter addressed to you than the one addressed to someone else who you don't know? You don't know about their life. You don't know anything about them. And here's a letter to them. And it doesn't mean a thing to you because you don't have any idea what might be going on. But if it's addressed to you, someone knows something about you, so they put your name on it and wrote it and tailored it to fit you. Now, we're nosy as human beings and curious, so perhaps 
there is a level of excitement about reading somebody else's mail. But overall, I think we would prefer to read the letters that are written to us. I mean, we might like to read something written to somebody else kind of on the side, but we still want to hear about us, don't we? And I want to make it clear that this is written to us. He says in the first verse, the vision of Isaiah. So this is something that God opened up and revealed specifically to Isaiah. Showed him, as in pictures. And Isaiah then reduced it to writing. Wrote it down for others to see in writing because God was not going to give the vision to everyone. So this is the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So his prophecies spanned the reigns, or part of the reigns at least, of four different kings. He began well into the days of Uzziah and preached through Hezekiah. So it has to do with Judah and Jerusalem, specifically the Jews, and specifically the capital of Judah, which was Jerusalem. Now you'll remember that the ten northern tribes had a different capital, that was Samaria. And when they went into captivity, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, moved a lot of Gentiles in. And those Gentiles were still there in the days of Jesus Christ. Samaritans were looked down upon. Now before, when Israel had been there, Samaria was the capital of Israel and was looked up to. But when the Babylonians moved all those Gentiles in, and they became then known as Samaritans, not the original Samaritans, but those who were transplanted there, they were treated as gods, as less than human in some respects. Races tend to do that to other races. All created in the image of God, all having the opportunity, ultimately, of salvation. And right now, Jew and Gentile both alike being offered salvation. And yet, all over the world, you see one race fighting another race. Sad, but it's true. Now, with just that verse, having addressed Judah and Jerusalem, let's go back to Galatians 6.16. Galatians 6. This is the background that I want to lay so that we understand who this is talking to. I'll start in verse 15. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Well, it isn't a racial thing. Once the gospel had been preached first to the Jew, then it went to the Gentile, and salvation was opened up to all races. So Paul is making the point here. <coughs> the circumcision, which was done exclusively pretty much by Israel, <coughs> meant nothing. That was just a physical thing that today means nothing. Circumcision of the heart is everything. And as many as walk according to this rule, to those who understand that it is not a matter of race, it is a matter of the grace of God upon all peoples today. As many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. So he's making a distinction here. But no longer is it of race, because at one time it was. You had to be born a blood Israelite. And remember, when they came out of captivity, 
how they had to seek through the genealogies to find out who really is a Jew and who isn't. And even in the New Testament, after it is made very clear by the Gospel writers that it is no longer a matter of race, it is a matter of conversion, we find that in Revelation 3, there will be those who say they are Jews, but are not. Now, that's not necessarily talking of the blood flowing through their veins. It is in the spiritual context of the churches, because there will be some who say they are part of God's spiritual Judaism, who truly are not, who claim to be converted, but they aren't. And I think that we're seeing a winnowing out process in the greater church of God today, in worldwide, and in those who came out of worldwide, to find out who truly is converted and who isn't. Where are the true spiritual Jews? So Paul calls both Israelites and those of any other races of the Gentiles the Israel of God. That is the Israel that counts today. Those who are converted, who are baptized, who are part of the calling of God at this time, now being chosen as to whether they will be a part in the kingdom of God. And then having been chosen out from this world, will they be faithful to the end so that they can be a part of the bride of Christ? So he is making it very clear here that Israel can be defined differently today than it was prior to Pentecost after Christ's crucifixion. From that time on, it was different. Israel is different. Judah is different. Let's go to 1 Peter 2. Uh, Nelson was here this morning, but I want to go back here. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. He's speaking to the New Testament church now. He says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood, a holy people, a purchased people. Peculiar is not a proper translation. We are a bit odd, perhaps, but the word here should be purchased. We were purchased with the blood of Christ. He purchased us, we now belong to him, and we are his slaves. That you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. We were just individuals out here living in the world, weren't we? God began to call us, and he placed us in the body of Christ and made us a part of those that he purchased. We come under his blood now. So we are a part of something, part of a body, part of an overall whole. We are no longer individuals in that sense. which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So speaking to the New Testament church, he says, you are a particular people, very carefully defined as those purchased by God. All right, now let's go to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, and I want to begin at the beginning of this chapter this time, not just quote down in one part of it. But let's understand He's just gone through the faith chapter, we call it, Hebrews 11, and showed how faithful, how strong the patriarchs of old were, 
what they had been willing to go through. And perhaps Isaiah is even mentioned there obliquely when it says he was sawn asunder. And that is the tradition. I read up on it a little bit the last few days and got more details on that tradition. It's actually unprovable, but there has to be some reason that Paul referred back to those who were sawn asunder. And one account I read said that they spread-eagled people, pulled their arms and their legs apart, and in Isaiah's case took a wooden saw. I can't imagine a wooden saw being nearly as sharp as a steel saw. And then they would start at the south end and start sawing up toward the chin. Now that's the way you quarter a beef. Mercifully, at least, you kill a beef first, hang it up, and gut it, and then you start right at the tail bone after spreading the hind legs apart, and you start cutting right down the backbone until you get down to the bottom of the carcass where the head was. But when they did this to people, they left them alive. They didn't gut them ahead of time, and they didn't certainly cut their heads off. They just started sawing, and probably sawed it slowly and excruciatingly until they got to the chin. What faith, what strength, what courage a man like Isaiah, if that indeed happened to him in that fashion, must have had. But here was a man who had faithfully preached God's word for 40, 50 years, then ridiculed, laughed at, scorned, not listened to, not taken seriously, and then died in that form, in that fashion. Now there's belief. There's a man who could write a book and say salvation by faith. Because that is the overall theme. It goes from a start of those with very little faith, as we shall see, and winds up at the end showing those of very great faith and great power in God. Turns out good. <laughs> and we're going to turn out good too, aren't we? Yes, we are. Because we're going to be faithful to the end. We're going to be faithful in little things, and we'll keep pecking away until we get the little things right. And then we know and can be assured that if we do that, we will be faithful in big things as well. Now, with that background, let's start into chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. We need to be mindful of all those in chapter 11 who went through all kinds of things in order to receive eternal life. Be mindful of their persecutions, their trials, their troubles, their afflictions, their difficulties, because they indeed had them. And Paul recognized here that sin is always at the door. It so easily besets us. It's not hard to sin. It's really easy to do. Everybody's done it. Isn't it easy? Always easy to sin. Very hard to repent, very hard to change. And run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, some of us have done some racing. 
I'm talking foot racing here. They didn't have NASCAR back then. But I can remember training for the mile race in high school. That was tough, hard. Trying to force myself to run as fast as the guys that had long legs. And to run longer. I actually did win one year. Won the mile race. But God knew that it would be tough. And he may have been talking about the marathon here because Paul sometimes was in Greece and they ran the marathon there 26 miles and that's an even tougher race to run. We have a long race. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the stake, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You and I have despised a certain amount of shame. We've been ridiculed by friends, relatives, neighbors, any who thought we were in a strange, weird religion. We will be despised before this is over by the entire world. That's what it says in the book of Revelation. It will only be God's few called out ones and the whole rest of the world will worship the beast and stand against those who are true. And it won't be a great number. It will be a remnant or a small part of that which was in worldwide 20 years ago. Small part of that. So roughly 6 billion against 7 to 12,000 maybe. I like the odds. God is on our side. Seven to twelve thousand can do a whole lot more with God on their side than six billion can do with the devil on their side. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Sometimes it seems like we have a tough road to hoe and the world is on top of us and and life is rough. And we haven't had anything compared to what Christ went through. Didn't I read Proverbs 24 the other day? If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Sometimes we feel like giving up. Sometimes we have tough days. But we know deep down we'll never quit, don't we? You've not yet resisted the blood striving against sin. We put out futile efforts sometimes, small efforts, give it lip service, but have we really set our minds to overcome some of the things that we talk about? And you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to children. My son, despise not you the chastening of the eternal, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, for what son is he whom the Father chastens not? God has called us as his sons, and he's only going to allow so much, and he's going to come down on us. Now, he's come down on the church, hasn't he? Pretty hard. He's simply not going to put up with it any longer. He's tired of our whining and crying and talking back and lip service and lack of deep respect and reverence for him. He's done with that. 
But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them respect. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? I mean, this is a life and death thing. A father to a physical son is not life and death. Well, it may be. Your children don't do what you say when you say it. When they're little, they could run out in the street and get run over by a car because they don't pay attention to you when you tell them to do something. And they may, when they're in teenage years, be in some of those cars and die because they think they're immortal and they can drive any way they want and drink anything they want or get high on whatever they want and do as they please and there will be no... Uh, uh, word I'm looking for, no consequences. But every so often, a carload of teenagers dies in a horrible accident, and the other teenagers at that high school will say, I just, I can't understand. How could this happen? How could this happen? Because they don't think it can happen to them at that age. And their minds, they are immortal. They know more than those who have lived longer than they have and seen a whole lot more than they have seen. But this is a life and death issue between us and God. For they truly, for a few days or years, chastens us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. There's a method to his so-called or seeming madness. He wants you to live forever in peace and safety and never have another tear, never have another pain, never have another sorrow again. Forever! That's his goal and his purpose in dealing with you. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them who pay attention or who are exercised thereby, who get the point. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Now, we have been being chastened overall as a church. We'll get into that more and we'll understand it as we go through Isaiah. I want us to understand it from Scripture, not just this being another man's idea. Because there are a lot of ideas out there as to why the church is in the deplorable condition it's in today. Some blame it solely on the devil. Some blame it on those Laodiceans, whoever they might be, anybody but them. Very few understand that God did this and spewed us out of his mouth because we have been Laodicean. Nobody wants to own that. Nobody wants to buy that. No one wants to accept that of themselves. They want to blame it on someone else. Now, finding ourselves having been in the middle of a chastening or a correction period, what are we supposed to do? Get discouraged? Get frustrated? Give up? No, 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 no. He says, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. God has been straightening our path out, straightening our feet, so we could walk in paddle-footed, or bow-legged, or however we were walking. 
and he's breaking our feet as necessary to get them turned straight. Now he says that the whole object of this whole thing is to get us to walk as Christ walked, straight ahead, going either to the right or the left, but to move forward in a straight line and walk as Christ walked. That's the whole purpose of what has been going on in the church. Now we should understand that and we should be doing something about it. Otherwise, the chastening for us, just like everyone else, will go on and on and on. God will not give up until he has chosen out a faithful remnant and put the rest into the tribulation and put them through so much grief and horror and pain that they finally repent and make straight paths for their feet. And those that are in that will more than likely die there. And not under peaceful conditions. Follow peace with all people and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. We are to be working on having straight paths for our feet. We are to be working, working at living in peace one with another and having holiness. Holiness sounds holy, but holiness simply means living like God lives, thinking like God thinks coming to accept his way of life, understand it, and live it. We don't want to get self-righteous and be holier than thou, which Isaiah talks about toward the end of the book, and we'll get to that. Not holier than thou, but live like God lives and think like he thinks. His thoughts are these thoughts. This whole book are his thoughts. There's some beautiful thoughts in Isaiah. It's a very inspiring book. We'll get there. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and therefore many be defiled. Now, this has happened. This is an end-time prophecy here in Hebrews 12. And many, many people today are bitter. They're bitter about what has gone on in the church. They're bitter about the way they were treated. They were bitter about the way it's fallen apart. Bitter about life. Frustrated. Don't let a root of bitterness grow. Don't be bitter. It's one of the hardest things there is to overcome. Once you get sour. You ever try to revive sour milk? <laughs> really hard to do. Can't get it done. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now, a little bowl of red soup, and you have the whole birthright against that, but he was hungry. In other words, that which God would offer, that which his father offered, wasn't that important to it. Now, to us, Esau is a really bad example. But is it so much different than life today, where we see the things of God, and we see the things of man... And some of those things of man that we see with our eyes and feel with our fingers, touch with our tongues, seem nice and good and fun and happy. 
and who despise the thoughts and the ways of God to pursue those things which for the moment seem nice to us, glamorous, exciting. Is that really any different? Now, I don't know that Esau has given up his salvation. He gave up a physical birthright, which is all that he was really promised. And his progeny down through the years have suffered and are going to suffer again. And there's some prophecies about them in the book of Isaiah. And the end-time destruction, and how they will fight Jacob, and how they will ultimately be destroyed for having done so. So that bitterness has carried on for thousands of years. Do you ever hear anything today about the Islamic, Arabic attitudes toward Israel, America? Have you ever seen anything like that on the news, in the newspapers, on the TV? Nah. That died out long, long ago, didn't it? No, it's on there every day. And we're over there meddling in their lives right now. And they resent us clear up to here. They hate us with a passion. And there's a billion and a half of them. Attitudes are passed down. Verse 17, For you know how that after, afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, we're in the same position, we're very close to inheriting the blessing. He was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. There are people today who have become so hardened and so bitter that they can't find peace and happiness and joy in God anymore. There are some writers who write articles that are published in the journal who are so bitter they are against anything and everybody. Their writing is very slanted, very prejudiced. All they can do, it seems, is put someone else down. Do you really think that they sit at home in peace and joy and happiness in the Spirit of God and then write stuff like that? No, their whole being, their whole persona, their whole life is that is the reason when they express themselves that's what comes out. They're miserable. They're not of God. One of them goes on and on and on about tithing. Almost every month, another article about how tithing is ungodly. Oh, it's in the Bible. It's there. From front to back. And they have no answer for Malachi, which is written to the end-time church. And the one thing God got on them about more than anything else was tithing. They got no answer for that. Because it's written to an end-time church, which is not an agricultural society, just as the one that Paul wrote to in Corinth was not an agricultural society. And he said he had the power to take tithes of them. But here's somebody who has their whole life so upset about that, why? Because he's so bitter against the ministry. Didn't God send the ministry to help us, to strengthen us, to lead us in the ways of God? Well, yeah, he did. But the ministry didn't do it in the way that it should have done it. And the prophecies are full of that. 
Some of God's greatest anger is reserved for the end-time church who does not tithe. We'd better wake up and smell the roses, or we might miss out on the kingdom of God over some simple doctrine like that, which people will go to great lengths to try to disprove because they simply don't want to obey it. We can get so hardened that we try to repent, but we can't. We just can't. We can't get past certain stumbling blocks. Why did he use the example of Esau? Because he threw it all away for something pretty cheap. And isn't this world pretty cheap? Yes, it is. It's tawdry. It's cheap. It's fake. God hates fake. He likes genuine, true, strong, honest. That's the real principle behind why makeup is wrong. It's a sham. It's a lie. It's not the truth. We hide that which God made and cheapen it by putting on what man has used to what he thinks is make more beautiful. And when you understand the beauty that God created and you take God's attitude toward it, then that seems cheap, tawdry, and wrong. For you are not come to the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, verse 18, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Didn't want to hear it. There's some of you who already, and I haven't even gotten into this series, don't want to hear what I've said already. We're not just come to Sinai, and that scared the pants off them. Don't let him speak to us anymore, they said of God. Just let Moses talk. They didn't want to listen to Moses either, did they? Now we're come to something far bigger, something far better, spark, something far holier than Sinai could have ever been, and it has better, stronger, greater, longer promises. For you're not come to the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor under blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the words should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as the beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. He shook all over, he was so scared. We've got a little thunder here today that's kind of in the background a little bit and isn't that loud. But when they stood up against Sinai and God thundered that out, it scared them all. I have been in thunder that would, would scare you beyond what you would think is possible. I remember one night on a mountain up sheep hunting in Montana. I was about 12,000 feet in elevation, I suppose. In a little tent. And a thunderstorm blew in that night. And there was lightning hitting the ground all around. And thunder so loud you could hardly think. And rain just pelting down in sheets. You've been there. 
You know, when it's on your windshield where you can't even see and you have to pull off the side of the road, that's the way it was raining. And the wind was blowing and howling very fiercely, and pretty soon the tent stakes all went, and the only thing holding down the tent were our bodies. And the top of the tent was in the face, and the rain, of course, by then was coming through the tent, and it was thunder and lightning so loud that it almost drove you out of your mind. Now, that must be at least some small approximation of what it was to stand there with God on Mount Sinai. That was scary enough for me. I don't want to go here and experience what they experienced. But God is going to shake this earth like Sinai was never shaken. It trembled. It quaked. But he's going to shake the whole earth like a rag doll very soon. You want to be somewhere safe when that occurs. And we must be accounted worthy to be there. Well, we didn't come to Sinai. Now, he's building up to something. We've come somewhere else. Let's go on. You are come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Here's where we're coming. Now notice that the church of the firstborn is listed in the same context as Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, which you can go to Revelation 21-2 and see that the bride coming down from heaven is that city. So any time in Scripture... We read about the city of God, we read about Jerusalem, we read about Zion, any of the prophecies, today it has reference to the church first. Now we all understand that, but I'm going through this meticulously again because this is the beginning of a new series which needs to stand on its own. And we need to get this principle before we ever get into the major prophets. This is imperative because we need to prove that those scriptures are not talking about those ancient Israelites or even just physical Israel today, but even more so they are speaking specifically of the church today. So Paul lumps them all together here and God inspired that to be done so that we would understand that those references of the Israel of God there in Galatians 6.16 and of Zion and Israel and Jerusalem are references to the church of the firstborn today. The heavenly Jerusalem. See, we're not our physical Jerusalem. That means nothing to us, does it? We are the heavenly Jerusalem. We are spiritual Jews. As Herbert Armstrong often said, the Bible was written for the church. And even he did not even begin to realize how much the Bible is written to the church. Because he did not live to see what happened to the church in the light of all these prophecies of the Old Testament. And for that matter, the prophecies of the New Testament. So, when he speaks of Judah and Jerusalem... In the book of Isaiah, he's referring, first of all, to you and me. It's a prophecy for the end time. 
And that will become so very, very clear as we go through the book of Isaiah. Chapter 24, for instance, talk about the earth being decimated and only a few men saved the life. That's an end-time prophecy. That didn't have to do with way back then. Yeah, they went into captivity. A lot of them were killed, but the earth's population wasn't decimated as it is about today. So, we'll see clues all through the book of Isaiah to show it is an end-time book. We're living in the end-time, and what we have seen happen to spiritual Judah, the church, is all written down ahead of time for us upon whom the ends of the world have come or are about to come. Go to Isaiah 60. This is a little bit of a sneak peek, but it has to do with this background as well and how it all winds up. Isaiah 60, verse 14. Isaiah 60, 14. The sons also of them that afflicted you shall come bending to you. Now, there's going to be a lot about affliction in the first part of this book. But when it's all over, they're going to come bending to God's people. And all they that despise you shall bow themselves down at the soles of your feet. Now, the book of Malachi talks about that as well, doesn't it? That same book that God jumps all on us over all about, on us about tithing, the same one where he says, they'll come and worship at the soles of our feet. Well, that was, that's the end of Zechariah, I think, Zechariah 14. But the context is essentially the same end of Zechariah, end of, of Malachi. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, isn't that what Paul called the early New Testament church and wrote down for those who would read it at the true end time? Same thing. We are Zion, the city of God if we are a part of God's church. Notice Revelation 21.2. I referred to this, but I'll turn back and read it right quick just so that we see that this goes through clear to the end. <clears throat> Revelation 21, verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So it ties the first fruits, the bride of Christ, together with the heavenly city, Jerusalem. Let's prove that that is so in verse 9. There came to me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. Now that takes it down pretty much to the end of the age, doesn't it? And talk with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So Christ's bride comes down with him at the end of the seven last plagues. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So the bride is the holy city, the new Jerusalem. So in a spiritual sense, when you read about Jerusalem and Judah and Zion in the Bible, it's referring to the church at the end. Isaiah's message is for us first. Let's see this further confirmed in Romans 15. If that didn't ice it, I don't know what will, but maybe Romans 15 will for us. Romans 15, beginning in verse 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves, not to do it so that we might feel self-righteous because we helped somebody out, therefore we are so good. 
Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Do it for the neighbor, not so that you might feel good about yourself. For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached you fell on me. Now listen. For whatsoever things were written aforetime, whatever was written in the past, in the Bible, okay, that's what we're talking about here, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Hope of what? Our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is in salvation. So he says everything that was written in the past, all of the Old Testament, the Gospels, everything that was written prior to the time that he book, wrote the book of Romans, was written for us. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the Minor Prophets, Psalms, Proverbs, Joshua, Judges, everything was written for us. In other words, we had better take those things personally. Not just say, well, that refers to physical Israel. Well, yes, it will, and most of physical Israel is going to die. But it also refers to the church because most of the church is going to go into famine on a spiritual level, and many will die. They may save their lives or their souls by being martyred for the truth in the tribulation. But they're going to have to die in order to prove that faithfulness. How much more important is it that we prove our faithfulness today? And if we prove our faithfulness today, then pray in humility that we be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are coming and be taken to God's place of refuge. Wouldn't it be nice to miss all this? Now, some of you might have gotten a little queasy when I was talking about them sawing Isaiah asunder. Wouldn't you prefer to miss out on that? Yeah, I, I think we'd mostly agree with that. Unless you really, really have a persecution complex. <laughs> you know, if you're that sadistic, uh, maybe a little counseling would be in order or anointing or something. Now, we, we really would like to miss out on that stuff. The question is, are we willing to pay the price that is required so that we will be accounted worthy to escape what has come? Don't we see images of that type of thing already on our television sets? Remember Somalia? All those people starving to death, children with nothing but skin on their bones, their little tummies distended, their eyes bugged out. There are people today on this earth who are dying of starvation. There are people who are being blown to bits daily in Iraq. Both Arabic and American and British and Australian. Their bodies blown into little bits and their blood running down the walls and in the streets. Our soldiers. This is happening today. I will be surprised if tonight I happen to flip on CNN 
and didn't see that there had been a car bombing in Iraq and one to five or ten American soldiers die this very day. Because it happens almost daily now. And Colin Powell mentioned the other day in an interview that it is getting worse. Someone high in the Bush administration, even before the election, admits it is getting worse and they have no solution. We have entered this period of time. There are millions of Americans on this soil dying every year of plagues, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, you name it. There are funerals going on. I drove past a funeral yesterday in a church coming through Laverkin. I know the Baptists don't meet on early Tuesday afternoon unless there's a funeral. The parking lot was full. I don't know what they died of. The guy that owns the motel I'm staying in is almost dead of cancer right now. In town today getting transfusions of blood. He didn't look good last year. I doubt he looks very good this year. It's happening all around us. We have those right here in this room who but for the grace of God would be dead already. But he has intervened and healed us at least enough that we've survived and are still here to listen and hear and repent and grow today. These things are written for now. All right, let's go back to the book of Isaiah and begin to understand. Yes, we will get to Isaiah 11. We'll talk about the millennium. We'll talk about the lion and the lamb lying down together. But do you realize what it is going to take to bring peace? You cannot go on as is. Something has to be done. Someone has to take responsibility. Someone has to do something about it. If God's family is to live together in peace and happiness, someone has to change some things to create peace. Peace does not happen on its own. Human nature does not go in that direction. If you have a family that is dysfunctional, husband and wife don't get along, or children don't obey, or whine and cry and beller and pitch fits and make themselves obnoxious. It doesn't heal itself. Someone has to sit down, you can stand, I don't care, and apprise the situation for what it is. And they have to think it through clearly and say, what will it take to resolve this problem and then you have to carry through and do something about it, or it will never change. Have you ever noticed that when there was a hole in the roof, and it would rain, you could sit under the drip and hope that it wouldn't leak anymore? It doesn't do any good until you think the problem through, get up on the roof, tear off the rot, 
replace it with new, reshingle it, and fix it, and it quits leaking. But our spiritual problems tend to be like the fellow sitting looking at the roof and thinking, it's raining, this is not a good time to go up and fix the roof. And then when it quits leaking, quits raining, he says, it doesn't leak anymore. I don't need to fix it today. It never gets fixed. Now, if anyone's going to fix the church, they have to take responsibility individually and begin doing something about it. Because to sit and be frustrated over the way things are without doing anything about it will never accomplish anything. And it will just rock on like it is and slowly get worse and worse and worse, or like a snowball going downhill, get faster and faster and bigger and bigger until it implodes completely when it hits the bottom of the mountain. <clears throat> That's where we are. And you and I are the only ones that can do anything about ourselves and about what God is doing. No one's going to do it for us. We simply have to get honest and straight and true and quit dodging the issues and finding excuses and finding outs and justification for ourselves and face the problem as it is and do something about it. Well, here is the vision that God gave Isaiah about the way things are today. Not just in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, because this was written for today, as Paul told us in Romans 15, 4. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Listen up, God has spoken. This is Almighty God of creation, the one who's thundering up there behind my head, the one who thunders in this word through his prophets, the one whose voice is like living waters. Listen to him. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. God started a New Testament church, and within 70 years, that New Testament church, from the, that day of Pentecost, with all those flames of fire and rolling thunder and people being healed by merely the shadow of Peter and John passing over people. From that day, 70 years later, the church could not be found. It disappeared. From the time that this end time church was founded, we have been right on the cusp of 70 years. And it grew from almost nothing to really something to a confused quagmire of quicksand and almost nothing. And it is quickly headed toward nothing when it cannot be found. There's a spiritual famine going on today, as for Amos 4, in which you have to go from city to city and search for the truth, and you might find it. But we're headed for Amos 8, where there's a famine of the word that is so severe 
that you can go from seacoast to seacoast and not find it. That is predicted and will happen. As surely as they predict hurricanes will come across Florida and it has happened, this will happen. Even more surely, because God has sworn it on his own name that it will occur. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. We are told to live by every word of God. Now, it might be easy for us to justify ourselves and say, well, isn't that worldwide? They went back into paganism. They went right back into the world. In such a way that we didn't. Okay? I've been trying to show you for some years now that not only did they go right back to pagan doctrine and into the world completely, but that we have not come out of the world yet either. We still imbibe so much of it in almost every aspect of life. And even if we try to move out of it, it seems we bring it with us and invite it to us. Rather than escaping it and pulling out and leaving it behind, we want to drag it with us. Now, isn't that what the Jews did in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah? They brought much of the pagan Talmudic system with them, and they have retained it to this day even though they came out and went back to Jerusalem. How righteous are they today? Just a few hundred years later, in which if they had come out of Babylon and gotten rid of Babylon and really obeyed God's laws, you would think by the time Christ came, they would have been really, really, really righteous, wouldn't you? But when he arrived, they were even worse than they had been in Babylon. And he ripped them up one side and down the other in several different chapters of the New Testament. And Paul did in Romans 3. And so there's nothing righteous about you. Period. And they haven't gotten any better since then until today. And we have many in the Church of God today who are now looking to the Jews for leadership. You can't get a whole lot much worse unless you go to Vanuatu on an out island and try to live like the cannibals that are still there. Or New Guinea. Those places still exist in this so-called civilized world. Small pockets, but then don't we bite and devour one another in our so-called civilized society as well? It's a dog-eat-dog world. It's a competitive world. Me first. I want to win. Satanic attitude. How much of that do we retain? We might joke about it, but we're going to do anything about it. Are we going to get over it? Are we going to be that way? You and I also have rebelled against God. It's not just somebody else. It's not those other people out there in the church or in some other organization that we might talk about. We too have done it. The ox knows his owner. The ass his master's crib. 
But Israel does not know, my people does not consider. They won't look honestly in the mirror at what they really are. We find ways of getting around it. I was going to bring an article, but I didn't do it, that uh, someone handed me a couple of days ago that was in the USA Today that only came out, I guess it was two or three days ago now, I don't remember what the issue was, I didn't pay any attention, I just read the article. <coughs> but it was about Jack LaLanne. Jack LaLanne is now 90 years old. I read just recently that he was about to, or just had, swum across the English Channel pulling four or five boats behind him. At 90. This is a man, who one of our members here told me recently, who appeared at his school when he was a youngster, this is, and he's in his past middle age. Middle age is 35, you know. If you're to live 70, middle age is 35. So anything over 35, you're past middle age. Even though people who are 55, 56, 57 try to say, I'm middle age. Sure you are. <clears throat> anyway, when Jack LaLanne visited their schools when he was a youngster, he told all the kids, you have to do, and these were kids that were the athletes, you have to do 100 pull-ups. And while you do, I'll do, it was either 500 or 600. And he did. And the man was well over 50 or about 60 probably at that time. Now he's 90. He still works out from 6 to 8 a.m. every morning with weights and various other... Some of you have seen his programs. They quit in 1984 on, on television. Fitness guru. I found it interesting. But he said the key to health is exercise and eating good foods. He said anything that is refined, white sugar, white flour, soda pop, uh, corn syrup, sugars, all the stuff you've been hearing about from me, are the problem. He just said that recently, and it was in the USA Today two or three days ago. Now, because God says we should not eat the foods of Babylon, and we cannot understand principles, we try to find ways around that so that we can stick to those things that we like. So, let's set God aside for a moment and see if Jack LaLanne has any authority. He's 90 years old. He said, I'm going to continue to work out two hours a day as long as I can because it's an ego thing with me. He's motivated by vanity just to see how long he can do that. I don't know whether he actually swam the English Channel pulling four boats or not, but, man, I can barely get across the back of that tub. <laughs> you know? The man must know something. He can still outdo all of us. I just, I'd almost bet money that he could do more pull-ups today than all of us could today combined. I mean, if each of us here in the room lined up and did pull-ups today, I wouldn't be surprised if the man could do more than all of us combined. 
If he slammed the English Channel pulling four, pulling four boats, I would not bet against him on this deal. He said, you have to get away from everything that man has oiled. Can we get the principle? Can we understand that? Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now God says, take care of our bodies. And we don't take care of them the way we should. And I'm preaching at Daryl. I'm not just preaching at you. When will we get the message? I brought up children and nourished them, and they've rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner, and the ass his owner. My people forgotten me. They live according to sight. They live according to the senses. They live according to what sounds, smells, tastes good to them. You thought it was all those Laodiceans out there? <laughs> hey, we got problems of our own here. You see, God does not compare us among ourselves and say, these are pretty good because they're better than those others. That's not the way he looks at it. He looks at it, those are not like me. We have the same problem in the church today that Job had. We look around at everyone else and say, I'm not as bad as them. Therefore, I must be okay. Now, God had to show Job in some very, very incredible ways. But he had better compare himself to God and realize how far short he was. Comparing ourselves among ourselves isn't wise, but the comparison is not great enough. Are we really that different than anyone else in this group, that group, or another group? Or do we still have very, very human problems? And do we very, very sadly lack in being like God? Israel does not know. My church does not consider. Ah, sinful church. Let's put church in there. Make this personal. Not just the physical nation, but the church. Because we still imbibe of the things of this society and of Babylon. And we find excuses and justifications for our weakness and our rebellion. Ah, sinful church. A people laden with iniquity. A seed of evildoers. The world is full of evildoers, and we are partaking of the same seed they eat of, to one degree or another. Children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger, they are gone away backward. Now some might try to deny this, but haven't we all been spewed out of God's mouth as a church? Didn't he predict that in Revelation 3? And didn't he say that they don't know they are naked and blind and wretched? And that they will say that they have everything they need? But don't understand at all their spiritual condition. It is so easy to deceive ourselves about our spiritual condition.
Why should you be stricken anymore? Didn't we just read Hebrews 12 about God chastens every son whom he loves? Now, the fact that all this is happening to the church doesn't mean God doesn't love us anymore. He says if you don't chasten your son, you don't love him, but he's a bastard. God doesn't want us to be fatherless and bastardly. He loves us so much, he wants us to turn out right. Now, sometimes we're bleeding hearts. Oh, I don't want to do that to the child. I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to make them hate me. Uh, That's not what it's all about. It's give them the guidance and correction they need so that they don't become a wreck. When you drive a car, let's understand correction. When you drive a car, are you not constantly correcting its course? Turn loose the wheel. See what happens. What will happen to a car if you turn loose the wheel? It will go into the ditch, through the fence, and down in the canyon on its own. It will go across the yellow line and into a semi-truck on its own. So you constantly guide it, correct its course, so that it does not become a tangled heap of junk. And we must understand correction in that light. Correction is not a bad thing. Correction is a wonderful thing. If you're a shiny new car and your owner loves you enough to make sure you don't get into trouble or stay in trouble or start off the course to correct you and keep you on your side of the road and not run into the car in front of you. That's what correction's for. But well, we we get the feeling that the ministry is the the enemy. So it got worldwide. Oh, said the minister might hear that. Don't tell Daryl. <laughs> Don't tell Mike. Don't tell Mr. So-and-so. I'm not here to destroy you. I'm here to guide you, to correct you, to help you on the path to righteousness and holiness and eternal life with no pain. That's what I'm here for. That's what Isaiah was there for. That's why God wrote this. They're not listening to me. Tell them, Isaiah, so maybe they'll listen and do something about it. And it doesn't do any good to tell people, and they say, oh yeah, that's right, that's right, that's good stuff. And they don't do anything about it. Child stops put his hand on the stove. He tells them, no, don't do that. Oh, that sounds good. I shouldn't touch that stove. I think I'll touch the stove anyway. No fear of chasing. They keep doing what they want to do. Because we as parents are not willing to follow through. Well, God, brethren, is willing to follow through. And what chastening he has done to the church now is only going to get worse. Now, we have a choice. God says, no, don't go that way. We have to make some decisions. Are we going to go the way of the world and the way the rest of the church is going? Or are we going to turn it around and go God's way? Are we going to avoid more stripes on our behinds? Or are we going to get bigger, stronger, heavier stripes? We have a choice. It's up to us. We need to listen to Isaiah.
because what Isaiah wrote here came in a direct vision from Almighty God. Okay? They provoked him to anger. They have gone away backward. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. He said, why do you take these stripes? Why do you keep on? There's another place he says, why will you die, O Israel? Why will you go through this, O church? Why should you be stricken anymore? But it just seems like that's the way you are. You don't want to do anything about it. See, that's where a parent comes in. The child can't control himself or won't control himself. So you make sure that child does control himself so that he goes up to be in control of himself. Now, God is doing that with the church. We don't control ourselves, so he starts putting pressure on. And the pressure is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger until when he says no, we say, yes, sir. That's what he's waiting for, for us to say, yes, sir, and back off. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. The leadership, he says, is sick. So when you look at the greater church of God today, through all the organizations, including this one, the leadership is sick. Am I completely well spiritually? No, I'm still sick too. I hope I'm recovering but I'm not like Jesus Christ yet. Far from it. I paddle it every day. <clears throat> Some days I do better than others. Some days you do better than others. But it's a constant race that we must run with patience. No matter how hard our lungs hurt, our legs ache, and our head hurts. We have to run patiently. Hey, it's going to be worth it. If we win the prize, we're going to win the prize. You've got to keep your eye on the prize. For lack of vision, the people perish. Keep your eye on that day when we will be absolutely perfect with uplifting nature and never have another cry, another pain, another hurt, another sorrow, an emotional letdown ever, ever again. Hard to believe, but therefore you have to keep your eye when you receive those crowns and that new name and that new language and that immortality. It's worth it. And what we are going through is designed to help us win that race. That's the purpose of correction. The whole head is sick. The ministry is sick. The whole heart is faint. How many times have we read in the scriptures, many, many different places, turn to me with your whole heart. And when you turn to me with your whole heart and you seek me, you will find me. That's what he tells us time and again. We have been half-hearted. And God can't stand lukewarmness. He just can't stand it. From the sole of the foot... Even to the head, there is no soundness in it. That's the way God looks upon the church today. 
And he says three big trees in Zechariah 11 are going to fall and three major ministries are going to crash in one month. He can't stand it. That's still prophetic. You think the church has been through trouble already? You ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get a whole lot worse. Are we going to be part of it? Are we going to be part of the faithful remnant that is protected? We're going to read about them. We're not going to get there today. I can see that already. Let's see, I figured I had to cover 11 chapters a day to get through this in nine sermons. I got cut out of one last night. That leaves eight and seven, and we're not through one. So seven into 66, oh my. Well, we'll see. How far we get. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Isn't that pretty much the way the church looks today? Now, Israel, as a nation, looks that way too. But doesn't the church look that way? Arguing and fighting and disarray and frustration over doctrine and practice and seems like no one can agree, the ministry can't agree, the people can't agree, those who write in various magazines and journals can't agree. The whole thing's just a sick miasma of some kind of tropical disease. What did, I can't say, Ebola. You know, we're just sort of disintegrating from within. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. They're just open, gaping wounds. That's just a pretty good picture of the way spiritual Israel is today. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Aren't our congregations torn down? Go to your city. New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Houston, Dallas, Salem. Don't make any difference. L.A., San Francisco, Denver, Chicago. Anywhere you go where there were three, four, five congregations in the metro area. Now it's down to, you know, in six, seven, eight hundred, two thousand, three, four thousand people in some of those. What's left? Not a whole lot. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers, devoured in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. Pretty much the situation wherever you look in the church today. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Uh, a cottage in a vineyard, I read that in the New King James, and it just talks about kind of like a little hut in the garden. There's not a whole lot left. It was a big house. It was a big temple. And now it's just little cubicles left. Not much there. Like a besieged city. A besieged city is one that is hungry. Don't people go from organization to organization to organization trying to find food and not finding much and moving on and moving on and not finding sound leadership here or there or anywhere else? Very hard to find. There are a few in the various churches, a few ministers who might be preaching what they ought to preach, but they're few and far between. Hard to find. Except the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been like Gomorrah. He said, if I did not preserve a faithful few, 
The church today would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. What was left of them? What? Nothing. Sulfur pit. But God, in His mercy, is going to save out a faithful remnant. Now, this has been a pretty sober, somber approach. The beginning of Isaiah. We've always thought of Isaiah 11 and happy, happy feasts. But it doesn't start out that way here, does it? Something for us to begin to think about and chew on as we go into this feast. Because what we are in, the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, is the beginning of the morning. And what he starts out with here are the things that have to happen before that peaceful, beautiful millennium can come. We have to get from here to there. And Isaiah is telling us what it's going to take for us to successfully get from here to there. As Paul said, remember this great cloud of witnesses and run with patience the race that is set before us. Because I want every one of you in this room, every last one of you, I want to see as part of the faithful remnant of God's church, which is protected. We need to get to know each other. We need to get to love each other. We need to get to pray for each other so that none are left out. So that we all successfully finish this race. Oh, only an interim goal of a place of refuge. But the ultimate race of salvation. Place of safety is not a goal in itself. It's an interim goal. To miss the horrors that are about to occur so that we might imbibe of the wonderfulness of the kingdom of God in the world tomorrow. So this was just an introduction today and we'll pick it up here tomorrow, God willing.